0: Only do what some people call useful research. We should know more. This is our main job. But um, we should also look with attention at the possibilities of translating this knowledge into useful application.
1: Two years after finishing medical school in 1972, Roberto Di Lauro moved to the US for a postdoc at the National Cancer Institute. There, Dilaudo began a career in molecular biology that went from studying gene regulation in bacteria to understanding regulatory networks in mammalian organogenesis. Along the way, he was a group leader at the EMBL, a professor at the University of Naples, Federico II, served as president of the Stazione Zoologica Anton Dorn, and was even at one time posted to the Italian Embassy in London. Roberto Dilaudo has been an EMBO member since 1992. He's currently retired from research, but still works in science evaluation as a member of the National Committee for Evaluation of Research in Italy. We talked about molecular biology, the challenges of evaluating and funding different types of research, and the occasional uses of having a minister's cell phone number. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast.
0: I have a degree in medicine. I've never seen a patient in my life because uh, on the 40-year medical school, well, some friends say that was good for the patients. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I uh, entered uh, a research laboratory at the uh, 40-year medical school and I never left the lab. My main interest has been molecular biology since I started um I, I at the beginning i worked on gene expression in bacteria uh and then i worked on cell type specific gene expression using as a model the thyroid cell and um and then from uh our finding moved us to work on medical genetics because we discovered genes that were involved in congenital defects of thyroid function and, uh, and, uh, we also studied in mouse models the, um, development of the thyroid because the genes we found that were involved in, in ty- cell type specific gene expression were also involved in, uh, in the organogenesis of the thyroid gland. So the last part of my career was devoted to study organogenesis. And as I said, um, now I have um, shut down my lab and I've dedicated myself to science evaluation and that's what I'm doing now uh, in this uh, national committee.
1: And this, this fourth year uh, transition from from medicine into the lab, was it in in the nature of an epiphany or did you know from, from the beginning that you were interested in, in scientific research rather than medicine?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I actually... Um, went into medicine because, you know, you have at one point to decide what to do when you grow up. And when I was in high school, my uh, uh, science teacher, and I still remember it, made a comment on these scientists that were trying to cure diseases like cancer and, and so on. And so that, so that, then that was the, uh, comment that tipped my interest in in medicine, but from the beginning I was really interested in um, in uh, research. And uh, in the first year of medical school, I read a book on um, the new discoveries of um, the genetic code. You know, I am. Uh, I am not so young, (laughs) the the discovery of the genetic code. And uh, that attracted my my attention immediately. So I started to read books outside of those that were required for uh, medical studies. And I fell in love with uh, DNA, RNA, uh, genes, how genes are expressed and how they function. And I never left that interest.
1: That interest in how genes are expressed and how they function led the newly minted MD to the Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the US's National Cancer Institute. A couple of days before Christmas, 1971, the NCI received a big boost when President Nixon signed the National Cancer Act, kicking off the war on cancer. Roberto Di arrived in Bethesda in 1974.
0: As I said, I graduated in medicine, but after two, two years after graduation, I uh, obtained a postdoctoral fellowship at the NIH, and that's where for four years I studied gene expression in bacteria. I was working on the regulation of the galactose operon in E. coli. Toward the end, this was the period in when restriction enzymes and genetic engineering was starting. So the last year at NIH, I stopped working on um, gene expression in bacteria, and um, since I became an expert for, you know, I uh, became an expert in genetic engineering, the head of the lab asked me to help. Uh, cloning the collagen genes. So I moved from uh, the galactose operon to collagen gene, but was mostly a technological competence that I had acquired working in bacteria. So I worked for the last year at NIH on uh, cloning the collagen, helping cloning the collagen genes. And then when I came to Naples, after four years at NIH, at the medical school, and when I started my independent career, I used that expertise to clone genes that are specifically expressed in the thyroid gland, in particular the tyroglobulin gene. And, and since then i worked on thyroid because we first cloned the thyroglobulin gene. We were unlucky because it was one of the largest genes known. So it took us a long time to clone the gene. And then we, after cloning this gene that was about 200 uh, kilobases long, the message is 10 kilobases. The gene had lots of introns and extremely long. Then we concentrated on the regulatory region because we wanted to understand why the thyroglobulin gene is expressed in thyroid cells and in essentially in no other cells in a mammalian body. So we concentrated on the regulatory region and tried to reproduce this cell type specificity in tissue culture and then we focused on the region, and then on the protein binding to those regions, we cloned two um, uh, uh, transcription factors, the gene for two transcription factors, that were involved in cell-type specific expression. And then we discovered that these genes were also important for organogenesis, and so our interest moved to organogenesis. And since... I shouldn't make a mistake, but it's about one in 10,000 children are born with the congenital defect in thyroid. Then we searched in these patients whether there were mutations in these genes. So it, it actually, we, we had the moment of uh, popularity because two of our genes were involved in, uh, we found mutation in two R of the genes that we have studied in patients with uh, congenital thyroid defect. So there were two Nature Genetics paper, which I'm very proud.
1: So you started in medicine, went to E. coli, and then ended up in human
0: again. And then, and then I went back to human, yes.
1: Jacques Monod said in an oft quoted but rarely sourced aphorism what is true of E. coli must be true of an elephant. During De Lauder's time at the NCI and in the years immediately after, Eukaryotic genetics threw up many surprises, variations in the structure and regulation of genes in elephants that were not predicted by the previous work in phage and E. coli. Dilaudo's paper in Nature characterizing the galactose operon was entitled, Unusual Location and Function of the Operator in the Coli Galactose Operon. That unusual location for a regulatory element was a whopping 60 base pairs away from the transcriptional start site. The introns he mentioned were entirely unknown when Dilaudo moved to the U.S.
0: Let me tell you a a, a story. While I was at NIH, and I was still working on lactose operon, um, there was this uh, 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 very, uh, very competent and and excellent scientist, uh, Shirley Tillman. She gave a seminar at NIH, and unfortunately, I could not go. And at that time, you know, was the beginning of cloning of, uh, of human genes. So she uh, cloned the globin gene, the beta globin gene. And so people went to listen to her seminar, and she presented this uh, amazing discovery that when uh, looking at the electron microscope of the hybridization between the message of the, glo- of the globin message and the gene that they had cloned, there was a piece of the gene that was not in the message. So, and they were, and I have to admit that my first comment was, ah, this must be a ridiculous artifact <laughs> <laughs> of gene cloning." was the first discovery of an interim.
1: I mean, there is exactly, there, there is a recorded lecture with, with Richard Roberts with exactly the same reaction where he told this postdoc, you, you made a mistake. Um, go back and do it again. And then he said, you made the same mistake again. Now I'm going to have to show you how it's done. And then, um, lo and behold, introns. Um, and to, to come a bit to to issues related to science policy, um, but starting at the same uh, experience that you've had in, 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 in the way you've, you've, you've started in science, this moment where you arrived um, at the NIH was also uh, the moment of probably the largest non-military scientific uh, mega funding initiative which was the war on cancer had just been launched um, uh, two or three years before by by president nixon Um, did that influence the way you think about how science should be funded uh, in in either negative or positive ways
0: well actually uh, that's a good question the lesson that i learned from there was I was working at the Cancer Institute that was established in in this large program of war on cancer. But in the Cancer Institute, I was working in a group that uh, was working on the Galactos Operon. And together, in the same uh, laboratory, in the same department, there were other working on bacteriophages uh, in the Cancer Institute. The lesson I've learned from that is that the Americans learned that they had much more to learn about basic concept in order to fight cancer. And as is something that is that is um as is still part of the way I think about science that science sure we should try to translate what we discover into Solving problems of the world of humans of the world in general, but we cannot do that properly if we do not know enough. So the lesson I learned from that that even in this war in this war on cancer program, the Americans were smart enough to leave enough funding to do basic science to learn the fundamentals on how genes are made and how genes work. And that has been essential, as we all know, because uh, without those discoveries, without the, without people looking at the basics, we wouldn't we, we wouldn't have uh, the human ge- uh, genome program. We would have genetic engineering. We would not have the discoveries of uh, genes involved in diseases. We wouldn't have gene therapy. We wouldn't have many things that derive from those basic studies. It's difficult to make a proper balance. I have been a strong defender of basic research. However, now I think that sometimes we are a little bit snobbish about applied research. We should should teach people. That uh, it is important to translate knowledge in something useful. We should not only do what some people call useful research. We should, and we should know more. This is our main job, but um, we should also look with attention at the possibilities of translating this knowledge into useful application and there was there is actually a program that is done i heard once a conference at the royal society in the period i was in london as science attache and this extraordinary person who at that time was president of the royal society paul nurse talked about this in a meeting now, I don't remember what was the subject of that meeting, was a Japanese-UK, Japan-UK meeting on applied research. And also Paul, Paul Nurse, is a strong uh, supporter of basic research, but he said we should work in building bridges between knowledge and application. And for example, the Royal Society has a fantastic program that uh, I have been trying to launch also in Italy but have not been successful up to now. The program is the Royal Society gives fellowship they are called the University Research Fellowship to Scientists on the basis of their creativity, innovation, ideas, nothing to do with application they reward people that uh, bring new contribution to knowledge of nature uh, but then they offer to these people program a course to understand the basic principle of business so that these people have some uh, basic elements in the case they run into something that might turn out to be useful that they know how to do it, and I think this is an extraordinary way. This is really a, a brilliant, simple way to try to build those bridges that uh, Polnors was talking about, which I think, I think, are useful. I think, uh, I think that uh, we should, we basic scientists, I am a basic scientist, um, should not
1: be snobbish
0: about it. We should not
1: disregard it. Well, and I, I think there's also one selfish aspect, if that's the right word, from the scientific point of view, which is so, for example, I, I, I teach a lot of um, MD, PhD um, kind of settings, and there is a, there's also a literal translation in the other way that is not talked about enough, which is the clinic and the real world is also often the source of things that become very interesting basic science. And so this isolation uh, also, So we going before molecular biology, we have DNA because, you know, Frederick Griffith was interested in, in the epidemiology of, 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 of bacterial pneumonia. And it was an entirely practical problem that became a scientific problem. And right. this, this is spread out through agriculture, through medicine. The, the, the real world is also a, a great source of very good science. So it really is translation. You're right. It's both
0: ways. There should, yeah. And on this communication, I think there is still much work to do.
1: I'm I'm very interested in this period where you were scientific attaché because you know from the movies we usually think the attaché is the spy. <laughs> um, but <okay. laughs> so the cultural attaché is always the one with the umbrella with rice in out poisoning Bulgarian dissidents or something. What what does a scientific attaché actually do in there? For example, what did you do in the London Embassy?
0: Yeah, the role of the scientific attaché is to promote a connection in the scientific and technological world between the country in which you are and your own country, Italy. So my, my role was to promote connection between UK science and um and italy it has been uh, a fantastic period of my life i have to say uh, also helped me to you know to and it is difficult for scientists to leave what they're doing so they retire and then they suffer and they go back they still go to the lab and no one wants them because <laughs> because they occupy a space and other people want that space at any rate So that helped me to say, all right, now I change job. I finished being a scientist. I go work for diplomacy. So apart from this personal comment, it was a fantastic four years. I only did that for four years. So I had to assist the ambassador every time he had to deal with something that was somehow related to science. So I had to prepare for him uh, info. But I also have met more people because while a scientist tends to be focused on his own problem, in that period I had to be completely unfocused because I had to cover everything from uh, nuclear fission to climate change. Um, which put me. I learned a lot. I, I have uh, uh, met more people in that period that I met in my previ- entire my previous scientific career. Um, talking about lots of things, so it was nice to cover so many things. My major accomplishment and my uh, strategy was to use, since there are lots of Italians working in UK. So, I used those Italians to connect to all institutions in u k so every time I needed information, I needed something I was talking with my fellow compatriots, in addition, of course, to u uh, k scientists and I also tried to promote a better connection between the Italian working abroad and uh, and our own country, also because u k science and that perhaps could bring us could be a nice um, way to connect to the second part of our conversation because the uh, I was in love with the way science is organized in the UK government. I learned how science there is organized, how evaluation science is organized, how the distribution of funds is organized. Nothing is perfect but uh, that was so much better what we do here. So um, I tried to um, uh, to send a message to, uh, toward Italy on uh, how things should be done. I was I was very much impressed, for example, by the fact that uh, in the UK there is a science expert in every department of the government. There is a scientific advisor in every... So that uh, the decisions, perhaps they do not depend always on the scientific expert, but at least they try to use... What is known are the science for the political decisions.
1: According to the EMBO facts and figures feature for the country, there are 1.8 million people in Italy involved in the life sciences. Italian R&D spending amounts to about 1.5% of its gross domestic product. Italy has 116 EMBO members. Professor Di Laudo and some of his fellow Italian EMBO members recently led a successful effort to lobby for changes in the Italian science funding system.
0: Funding of science in Italy is done with programs that are very much like the program of the European Commission, where the funding is done to large networks. And there is one, one, one important reason to do this is to reduce the burden of uh, evaluation. Because if you fund large networks, then you can fund 20 people with one evaluation rather than evaluate 20 people that apply individually. So, actually, this starts from EMBO. Because a group of us, of Italian EMBO members. We asked the Italian EMBO members whether we should get ourselves organized to have an impact on how science was run in Italy. And um, so we had an election. We are not organized as an association, it's sort of a steering committee. We had an election among Italian EMBO members, which which are 100 something, but now I don't remember. We had an election to uh, establish this um, a steering committee of five members, and I was elected among the five. So with uh, with these colleagues, we got together and said, well, if we want to have an impact, what should we do? So we decided to focus, and we identified as an important objective to try to uh, reach was to establish an individual fund, funding for individual scientists which was not present we well we elaborated a small document where we touched also on other points how the evaluation should be done and the fact that the funding should be regular there should be at least a call once a year which were not was not the case not even for the funding of large groups so we wrote this document said in italy this is missing there is in all other countries um, of uh, the western world at least the most advanced countries in in the world and we sent this document to the minister and the minister was uh, gracious enough to ask us to go and talk with her and uh, so we gave her this document and uh, she said that she was thinking about it now how much was our meeting with the minister and the presentation of this document instrumental for the launching of this program which is called fis fis fund for italian science funding for italian science which is a program to fund individual scientists. I, th- I think I don't know we like to think that we had, we made at least a dent or a contribution for the program to be launched. This program did not exist before, and this goes to the credit of the present minister, which unfortunately is going to leave government because, as you know, there are elections in Italy, and the government uh, is. Um, out of business, but she, this has been a great contribution that this minister has left and uh, a difference from the many other funding that there are now for the Italian research because of the PNRR, the Italian Plan for Research and Re- for Recovery and Re- uh, Resilience, this money that she put on this program is not a lot, it's 50 million euros for the first year, but will go to 150 million euros for the next year. These are money that are from the ministry, are not money from this um, European plan, extra European fund that we have received. So, are not is not a, a program that has an end. Once it started, its on funds are from the ministry, and that's what we said the ministry, because the ministry said, we don't have much money. We actually made an estimate that we needed for this program uh, about uh, eight hundred million euros. She said, "I don't have that uh, that one. And we 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 said, "Well, the important thing is to launch it because once it's launched, then there is there is a program, and can can always
1: be increased." And and it's a it's it's a huge step forward, and I'm. I wonder if there is any advice you would give to to other working scientists, working researchers, um, if they feel that they would like to take a, a, an initiative of this type. You know how to approach um, the the policymakers. What how the um, so it's 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 not unusual um, that that people will get together and, and write a position paper or or a plan. It is unusual that uh, to whatever degree, as, as you say, but that it's, um, it contributes to change. So, it, it, it is actually effective. Is there, is there any advice you would give uh, to, to move from uh, lamenting the state of things to changing the <laughs> state of things, specifically uh, for scientists?
0: Yes, I can only, I, I, that is not. I can give, a little advice I can give is be courageous, because we established, we prepared this document, we wanted to send it to the journals, and then we said we should send it to the minister, but how do we send it to the minister? She would receive tons of messages, why should she look at something like that? How can we do it? Who do we know that knows the minister? And actually, looking in my agenda, I find the cell phone of the minister, because the minister, uh the Minister worked for the National Research Council before, and we had we met briefly and you know I am a little bit reserved. They said, yes, we I met briefly, but now this person is a Minister. We should not uh, can I use her cell phone so at the end, after discussing with the five colleagues of us, I took some courage and I sent her a message. I was not talking with the Minister for the last few years. And so she, and I said, we have repaired the program. Where can I send it to you? Can, um, uh, s- sorry to disturb. Well, can we? And, and she was nice enough to say, sure, send me a mail with the program. And uh, why don't we get together? So, you know, there is no general rule on how to inter- interact with politicians. So I was lucky enough that I had a personal contact, even though the contact was weak. But I used it and worked. There is no general advice that works for all countries. So, if, if you have a cell phone, use it.
1: We need to talk about the relationship between exceptionally good, excellent science in a few centers and equally important, good science, as it is conducted in many labs at several institutions in the country. The country in question was Italy. And these are the words of Professor Roberto Di Laudo in a recent EMBO interview. <laughs> I asked him about how one should balance the goal of supporting outstanding, cutting-edge research and the need to nurture and support what, for lack of a better term, we could call normal science.
0: That tough question. is not easy to answer this question. I do agree with you that there is a level of excellence and there is a level of normal and we have to find the proper way to define this thing, because there is no good science and bad science. Science has to be good and has to be solid. However, some uh, people have the opportunity to work in institutions or have the funding to ask very ambitious questions. There are some other scientists that don't ask very ambitious questions also because they don't have the means to address those questions. However, they do a very important job, for example, teaching. I mean, there are some university professors that devote most of their time to teaching. There are uh, research institutes in Italy that are located in difficult parts of the country. And they need to be supported because they have, a, they, uh, have a, a fundamental role. One important role, I think, is they capture brains, because if there is a network that is diffused through the country, where people do some research, that is a great opportunity for young people to get to be in contact with research, and among those, the excellent can emerge. In addition, there are some other, uh, some other, uh, So there is teaching, there is capturing brains, there is, um, there is, also the attention to local issues, which which is a, an important role that some research institution might have, and that are not necessarily excellent from a scientific point of view, but are important for the local communities. So I think that we should look without, again, without being snobbish, we should look at the at both networks. And we have to generate ways in which the two networks help each other. The normal network helps by dedicating to teaching, to capture brains, to be present on the, locally. The... Uh, But they help the excellent networks because they provide those brains to the excellent networks. And the excellent networks have to support by hosting people from these labs, um, by constituting centers where people can go and talk to the excellent scientists, to the scientists that are in contact with the most advanced science there is a polemic these days because Ital- italy has launched at distance of several years two center of excellence one is the is italian institute of technology in genova and uh, the other one is the human Technopol in milan i think I, I am a great supporter of this initiative and this what you know this applies also for example to EMBL. Because these are centers of excellence, and the countries contribute to this center of excellence. But it's clear that the center of excellence, because excellence cannot be diffused, it costs too much to diffuse excellence everywhere. So one has to uh, uh, be in peace with the idea that there are excellence is costly, and can be concentrated only in few places. But these few places need to establish contact with the normal network that I have other means. So, but to go back to your question, which was more um, insidious, uh, should one put aside some money for the normal network where one should not be excellent? I think yes. My answer is yes. One should, one should define some programs. For example, in one of the funding programs in Italy, there is an allocation specific for the South, where only people that work in institutions are located in the South. Since the South is poorer, there is less possibility to find external funding. So the government has decided to allocate 40% of the funds to the South, and you can apply only if you are working in an institute in the South. I welcome those initiatives because it helps promote science and research. So, uh, initiative of this sort where you allocate some funds for specific programs which, of course, evaluation should be rigorous, but uh, the aim of of this should not be the most advanced science, or the most excellent science.
1: Well, for me, I, I have, a, I, and I know the the boat has gone too far in the in the way we use the language here. But I have a bit of a problem with the way um, the word excellence was chosen, because I think it's more what you mentioned. My my personal opinion: advanced or cutting edge, but. Um, there are yes. people working on local problems uh, who are doing extraordinarily difficult and, and very, very um, challenging science, but in the end, the outcome is improving soil quality somewhere in Sardinia or something. Um, I I wish we hadn't picked the word excellence to run with, and I, I wish, uh, if first, my personal opinion is, is advanced, uh, which you used, or cutting edge, which is a scale problem, which are different kinds of challenges I am I am much more comfortable with also because I, I am originally from Brazil and I, I and then I was an editor at, at, at Journal of Experimental Medicine for a while and for me uh, if we were going to rate excellence if you can produce a high quality paper in the University of Paraíba where you built your own spectrophotometer you know, and 16 referees told you that a native English speaker should look at your paper. Um, I am much more impressed by that than by the 16th paper from that center of blood research uh, lab uh, this year, where you came in, the mouse was there, the reagents were on the table. So I, I, I. But this is the way the world is. But I, I think the word excellence loads into this assumptions about the quality of the work, which. Which uh, so I, the idea of normal, of course, comes from this kind of Kuhnian yeah. uh, view of science, and and it's and I think in that case it's more apt is the things that we know how to do, but they are hard. They are very hard day-to-day problems. Um, some uh, we all know outstanding people who stayed in their regional institutions because they thought that was important, and I th- I think part of the it's going to generate more problems than it solves in the long run to use the excellence label because of the sort of rhetorical pushback that you could expect to get in that sense
0: so I agree with you and I think that we should uh, so advanced is better than excellent as uh, I agree with that Uh, we should also find a different word from normal yes because people don't like (laughs) normal
1: absolutely
0: I am not normal, what do you mean? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And in fact, this is actually something uh, we talked with my friend Ian Mattai who, directed the, who is directing the Human Technopole. And at the beginning of, you know we were discussing on this polemics, I was in Italy, why so much money for the Human Technopole when we have the Italian research has no funding. I disliked that argument because I think Advanced Center help everybody and to have an advanced center like the MBL in Europe, Human Technopol, like some universities in UK, like the Howard Hughes Institutes in the United States and so on, is important because there is a place where knowledge, expertise, machines, advanced machines are concentrated. And if people from the other network, which we don't like to use the word normal, want to have access to at least they know where to go they have somebody to talk to they have a a place where to get advice so this relation between the center advanced center and the basic research infrastructure and academic infrastructure in every country and in europe is an issue on which perhaps the mbl or EMBO perhaps should make uh, a position paper.
1: You can read a recent interview with Professor Roberto Di Laudo at EMBO.org. It's in our Focus on Italy feature, a part of a new collection of EMBO member state profiles, which so far includes Finland, Estonia, Turkey, Poland, Greece and Denmark. Each focus feature includes interviews, fact sheets and a summary of EMBO activities in the country. Thank you for listening to the EMBO Podcast.